All right, here we go. All right, class 26, security, interest, and land. Um, administrative uh, things, we're going to, I'll push the uh, next uh, problem set till Monday. We'll go like Monday to Monday. Um, so you guys don't have to do it over this weekend since I understand you have a project due on Saturday, which is really great. <laughs> but whatever. Uh, I won't add to that, that pain, and I will get it due before Thanksgiving. So, um, so we'll go Monday to Monday on that. Uh, still working on your problem sets. I have uh, had great hopes of finishing them last night but fell asleep. Uh, but I'm sure you can all sympathize with that, that activity. All right, here we go. Got a fair amount to do today, so um, you're going to get just a lot of me wandering around waving my arms. Um, and all right, so Medico Dental, uh, you'll remember this is where we ended up um, just at the end of class. And so this is the, the case where um, there's a Horton and Converse is a drugstore, and they sign a lease uh, in this building. Um, the lease has a specific rider that says that they are the only, to be the only tenant in the building with a retail uh, drug sale business. Um, this is probably important because the rest of the building was medical offices, so they uh, thought they were in a uniquely well-positioned spot to sell um, uh, pharmaceutical drugs to the, the customers of the other tenants. Um, the... Uh, building, however, the landlord rents out uh, a new space, a, a space to uh, a particular doctor who's running what appears to be sort of a precursor to the modern HMO. As part of that, he actually is dispensing pharmaceuticals from his office to the patients who sign up with his plan, uh, and a dispute ensues. And the question here is whether or not um, Medico, or whether or not Horton and Converse, the drugstore, uh, has a remedy. Um, uh, for the, the, viol the apparent violation of the, the lease uh, component that says that they are the exclusive tenant with uh, pharmaceutical drug sales in the building. Right? So this case um, turns, and the sort of most important concept I want to make sure to get across is that this case is more representative than the Paradigm versus Jane case that we, that we talked about yesterday. If you remember that case, uh, that was the, the case where Prince Rupert had expelled the, um, the, the poor uh, uh, tenant, right? And what was the result? Did the tenant have to stop paying rent? No, right? So the court says that those are, are essentially independent covenants, the covenant to enjoy the possession of the property and the covenant to pay rent. Um, although those point different directions, they are independent of each other, and therefore the violation or the, the ending of one won't excuse the, paying, the, the other. Right? The change here in the way that Medico Dental um, uh, changes, well, ex sort of exposes a change in the law is that we're much more now uh, in the modern era thinking about these leases in terms of, of their contractual flavor rather than their sort of traditional property rights flavor. And that means we're going to interpret them uh, much more like contracts uh, than, than we used to. And this is the idea of mutually dependent covenants. So the idea here is that the covenants in the lease, um, paying rent, uh, having possession, 
here having an exclusive uh, uh, right to be the only tenant with, with drugstore um, are, are all interdependent. They all relate on each other. And to the extent, uh, and you know from contract law by now, that what happens if, if you violate a covenant in a, in a contract? Anyone? Hmm? Anyone? Damages? I don't know. What happens? How do you know? Is there, Do you violate any word of the contract and you're out? Yeah? I, I think you, you get either an injunction or damages. Okay. But how do we know? So if, if you and I have a, have, a, have a contract to do something and I don't meet the express terms of it, does that automatically mean I'm in breach and therefore you have a variety of possible remedies against me? clothing retailers and they were there was a dispute over whether or not they were selling a dress. Okay. And so the, the dispute came down to how do you define a dress? The restricted covenant, at least in that instance, was would have been valid, but you couldn't really describe dress in a way. Alright, well let me let me put it this way, right? Um, let's say the lease has a variety of, of terms in it, one of which is terms is going to be that there'll be a, a, uh, you know, a, a polite security guard at the front door of the building. Okay? Turns out that the security guard that gets hired by the landlord, not so polite. All right? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm glad you like my hypo. Um, all right. So, has the landlord violated the lease? Is, or, well, let me, so let me put it differently. Is the, is the tenant now entitled to some remedy, whether it be specific performance or a reduction in rent or damages? Is that, is that it? Sharon? I don't know, uh, but I would think. <laughs> if you don't know, then don't tell us. Anyone think they know? Wouldn't the breach have to be material? Yes, exactly. Right? So this is the, the contract way of dealing with leases, which is that we have mutually dependent covenants. This means every term in the lease represents a sort of a breachable item. Not necessarily. You're going to have to deal with materiality for all of these. Right? So, so the next question is, um, uh, has there been a breach of the covenant not to lease? And it looks pretty clearly like there is a, um, uh, a breach of the covenant not to lease because it appears that the uh, landlord knew that there was a um, that Dr. Boonshaft, the HMO, uh, was going to start doing this, and so there wasn't really any doubt. So it looks like there has been indeed a breach, but the question is whether this breach is substantial, right? Because if it's not a substantial breach, then even though it is technically a breach, it's not uh, clear that the um, uh, that the uh, that the tenant is going to have any remedy for it. And here, what do you think? Is this a, is this a material breach of the deal? Looks like it. So how would you know? How do we know that? What kinds of things would you want to know? Okay, so you could ask if the sales, if it affected uh, his business in some way. But we might not know that yet, right? It could be that this, this guy's just moved in, the, the Dr. Boonshet. Okay, and how would you know that? Because, of course, now he's going to insist the only reason I was in this building is you gave me this deal, right? Uh, you have to look at uh, what they were thinking ex-ante. Okay. 
But what would you do? Like, how would you do that? I mean, you're not going to let the guy just testify and say, oh, I, you know, I was clearly intending to be that this was material. I mean, well, first you have to look at the, the language. Good. Contract. Yeah. So what kind of things would lead you to believe that this is material? If there's other terms that relate to it. Okay. What kind of language is relevant to Good. specific setup. Yeah. Um, and then if there is no clear language, sorry, I'm introducing more contract talk, but then you look at parole evidence to see if, if, that's, if that's there too, or you could look at parole evidence. Okay. All right. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I mean, so this, so here, the the provision saying you're the exclusive tenant with drugs with the drugstore is in a rider, right? It's in a it's in a rider to a sort of standard form lease. This is pretty typical, right? There will be very often for landlord tenant leases there'll be a uh, a more or less standard set of terms, and then there'll be customization of these terms with riders. So does that make it more likely that it's a material covenant or less? that it sort of doesn't appear in the main body of the, of the lease, but it's instead attached to a rider. Steve? It makes it more likely because the parties went out of their way to add this language to the, to the form contract. Exactly. In fact, that probably pretty much decides the case. I mean, if it's an actual rider that appears that the parties had, had paid clear attention to um, and, and probably negotiated specifically for, then that's almost certainly going to make it uh, a material covenant and therefore uh, a breach is going to be a substantial breach, right? And then the, the court uh, goes into a waiver issue, which we don't really have time to deal with. But let's talk about a little bit um, here a few issues, which is, is it good policy to allow these sorts of leases? I mean, should the courts be vigorous in upholding a restrictive covenant? I mean, this is, a, this is limiting the ability of other tenants in the building to... to exercise the freedom of their possessory rights, right? Isn't this, is this, is this right? Is this good? Gosh. Uh, I like it here because I think that it enables the landowner to uh, maximize, or theoretically maximize the value of their building by being able to charge a higher rent to uh, their patrons and they can um, structure the building in a way that is mutually beneficial to everybody in the building, and so that way everybody in the building can pay more. So, um, you know, although it might not be open to everybody else in different industries, it, it's not the landowner's problem. Okay, good. Yeah, so the idea here is that, that this sort of customization, this ability to have these sorts of covenants is going to be, is, a, is essentially a way of delegating the, the management of this overall property to the landlord. It's almost a specialization of skills sort of deal, right? Where you are, um, all the tenants are saying, all right, we're going to sort of delegate to this landlord a, um, a, a management authority to pick the right people, put them all together, have one person who's doing this, one person who's doing that, make sure you enforce it all, sort of paying the landlord for a management authority, which in theory should allow the landlord to maximize value, but perhaps even more importantly is going to make make it probably better off for everybody involved. And certainly if they're getting more in rent, then it probably is better off than if they had just had sort of any random person in the building. All right? um, so why do you think the landlord didn't respond to the drugstore's claim? The landlord basically says, sorry, buddy, can't help you. 
when, when the drugstore writes the letter saying, by the way, Dr. Boonshaft is, is distributing uh, pharmaceuticals. Why do you think? Anyone have a clue? I mean, think about it from the landlord's perspective, right? Why would the landlord not say, oh, my goodness, I had no idea? Exactly. It's almost certainly because they were getting a lot more money from Boonshaft. So once again, the, one of the principal rules of property, the money usually wins. Um, sorry, uh, it is surprising. I actually had a, a student once who did a paper for me on uh, property law. He went through every major case that he read and explained how the person with more money won every single time. <laughs> so, it actually works. Um, so the landlord uh, allows Boonshaft to continue probably because of the gains of, allowing Bo of having Boonshaft as a tenant are bigger than having uh, a happy drugstore tenant, right? Um, and then this landlord, a governance issue. So does this new approach, this more modern approach, this very contract-like approach to leases, does this help when, when you just make an oral lease to, to uh, you know, farm a piece of land or to rent an apartment? Is it helpful? Not helpful? What are the implications? All right, so we, we, you and I just agree. We just sort of oral handshake out in front of the building. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to rent the third floor uh, to, for this building. Um, now we have some dispute about something uh, related to, um, well, related to my living there. And does this new contract approach help? Yuri? Depends how long, right? Depends how long the, the lease is. Uh, in some cases, yes, you'll have to do use a, a oral agreement. Or what if we have a written agreement, but it doesn't specify anything in particular? On that case, um, once again, not, not to spout out more contract stuff, um, they're going to use whatever default rule. The court is going to set default rules, and that's like what we're talking about. The court's going to intervene and get involved in this. Okay, so what do you think would happen if... Let's, so let's say that it, let's just change the facts in this case. What do you think if, if there was a, you know, an understanding perhaps that this was going to be the only drugstore, but this rider just didn't exist? What would happen? Uh, I don't think it'd be enforceable. You don't, so you don't think that the drugstore would get any relief for, yeah? Anyone agree, disagree? Good. The understanding it should be very costly, and it's good policy for a court to, you know, want to enforce that, or at least you know, relieve that, those expenditures. Right. So, so one, so one question I would have here is, is that as a way of sort of working through this um, in terms of contracts? And do you think it's better for courts to do that, to try and fill the gaps in on the contract that's not complete? Or do we, should we just fall back to the, to the older model whereby we have independent covenants and one of them is to pay lease, one of them is to have possession, and, and you, know, you can claim that one of them is, is to be the exclusive drugstore, but even if that's violated, you still don't get any relief unless there's something specific in the, in the contract that says so. how it's good for evidence and just looking back and so that you both know what you're agreeing to so if it's actually written and you both see it and then you both sign it then it's clear that you both 
you, you're entering into? Well, that would obviously be preferable. Now, the question I have, though, is what do you think courts should do, though, when it's just not? I mean, parties screw this up all the time, right? I mean, ideally, yes, they would, they would negotiate out all of these things. But what if the, you know, the drugstore just shows up and, at court and says, you know, the lease doesn't expressly say that I'm the only drugstore, but everybody knows I'm the only drugstore? I would look to other written things. I don't know. I'm, I'm hesitant to go by word of mouth or what other people say about sure. it. But if, like, I don't know, if emails were written or you could look at that kind of evidence. You don't have to, maybe it's not specifically in the lease. Yeah. But if it were written in some other way. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Any thoughts? How should a court deal with that? Stay out of it? Move forward? I mean, the, the point here is that although we have this new modern sort of contract approach to leases that it's not clear how much this is going to how much good or how much difference this is going to make for people who aren't explicitly um, uh, contracting for particular terms in their leases uh, and in particular um, it doesn't look like it will help sort of the more informal uh, types of arrangements for leases um, because you're going to have I, I think courts will often sort of fall back to the to the more traditional independent covenants model um, which can be often very harsh on the tenant, uh, in particular, if there's a um, if there's a problem with that. Okay, all right. So those are some of the issues related to to leasing. Uh, one more, and this is the um, an, an interesting case, and this is the case that sort of launches an entire revolution in landlord tenant uh, law, uh, and this is the implied warranty of habitability. All right. Um, so Javins is, is about uh, a case where uh, the tenants reside in, in a building complex in Washington, D.C., known as Clifton Terrace, uh, and they didn't pay their rent. Uh, and then the landlord sues them uh, for rent, uh, and the tenants defend by saying that the premises are subjects, uh, you know, simple facts, 1,500 building code and other kinds of violations here. 1,500, right? What's going on here? do you think? 1,500, doesn't that seem a little extreme? Probably a bunch of different violations in each person's apartment that they're aggregating. Okay, but, that's so, but just think about that scale. Like, what does that suggest to you about this case? Ken? Okay, so one is this place sounds like it's in pretty crummy shape. That's, that's one thing. But still, 1,500 is a lot. I mean, think about how long it would take you to, to find 1,500 violations. Jay? Sounds like hyperbole to me. Like the, the tenants are just like, oh, and this is, this is like a tilted uh, room. It's like you down. <laughs> yeah, they're putting levels on the floor. Yeah, potentially, right? Potentially could be overblown. What do you think they're trying to do, though? Right. All right. So, so one, it suggests a level of preparation that seems pretty unusual for tenants who are just pissed off by the condition of their apartment, right? So it sounds like, so it definitely should clue you in that something else is going on here. They were ready for this, right? And they knew that there was a particular reason that they were going to not pay rent for the month of April. So, and what is the other thing that's useful about having 1,500 code violations from their perspective? If your goal is to get a challenge to the, or, or to get a case started that's going to challenge the basics of landlord-tenant relationships, what should you do, what should you be sure about in order to make that stick? So 
court's not going to be able to key in on any individual violation to overturn Exactly. Let's take the whole issue of code violations essentially off the table and just say, look, there's so many here, they're clearly violating the code, right? So it just it takes that factual issue off the table, and now it's really just a legal question, right? And the legal question is, um, does a landlord have a duty to maintain the apartment during the term of the lease um, uh, as uh, according to the building code? Does a, a landlord have that duty, even if it's not in, this, in anything, um, any of the um, uh, documents related to the lease, right? So a few things. One, there was an older doctrine uh, called the illegal lease doctrine that, that was a precursor to implied warranty of habitability. And the illegal lease doctrine basically said you weren't allowed to give out a lease, you weren't allowed to sign a lease if you were a landlord, if at the time of the starting of the lease um, there were a bunch of code violations, if there were material code violations. So um, what this is, case is doing is trying to expand that idea to make it that throughout the entire term of the lease that the landlord has a duty to maintain the apartment at, at a particular level, i.e. the code mandated level. Right? So the court goes through a lot of um, arguments about why it's doing this. Um, it's it's understood, it understands completely it's breaking new ground uh, in doing so. This is no court has ever done this before. Um, uh, and uh, the court says it has a duty to update the law, uh, to update the common law where circumstances have changed. Right? And, and that because there is a change in the circumstances, the court needs to revisit the law. Um, I think that's right. Is that the way the common law works? Brandon? Well, it just seems strange to me, considering the fact that presumably, if you had gone back a hundred years, there were worse slums with, you know, more. Uh, oh, no doubt about that, and I think the court would agree. So, what is it that you think? Yeah, right. So, what is the change? I mean, is the court right that now in the in the 70s, the time is ripe? We need to we need to figure this out and change it because we're not going to stand for sort of the slums that we used to have? The court points to the fact that it's now, this is an urban environment. Previously, there was, like, if you owned a piece of land, you were improving that piece of land, but now people have no interest whatsoever in the land itself. They have an interest in the apartment, and okay. it's, it's kind of on them to maintain the building in a way that's livable. Good. So the, re the concept of sort of renting to reside has expanded tremendously. There's a lot more people, particularly in urban environments now, who are renting apartments, don't own things, and therefore they don't have the incentive to maintain or update properties. Anything else that's changed? Yeah? Um, the people that have the houses are not a jack of all trades, so they presumably couldn't update it if they wanted to. Okay. Good, right? So there's there's the argument that increasingly, as as the leasing, uh, as more and more people are leasing and and uh, and so forth, there are there's less of the people um, who are going to be able to actually fix this themselves, right? So where does the court get this idea from? They basically import this idea of an implied warranty of habitability from an, an other another area of the law. Lisa. Um, I think they basically adopt like consumer products warranty where they say it becomes pretty much standard practice that there's an implied warranty of safety or an implied warranty of use. So because we do that with consumer products, 
Exactly. That's exactly right, right? The court says we do this all the time when we're talking about consumer products, that there's some sort of implied warranty that, that the product you buy is actually going to work as intended. Why should an apartment be any different, right? An apartment is just a product that you're purchasing over a period for, you know, the right to live in over a period of time, and therefore it should come with uh, a various strings attached, including uh, the, the requirement that it be in good shape, right? Is that right? that sort of follow? Uh, uh, well, if, I don't, I don't know if this is the rationale behind product liability, but it's like, now that there's more uh, steps in production from the person who makes your whatever household consumer product, you can't like go to them and say, this piece of junk you made me hurt me. Well, you can. Right, but it's more difficult. Okay. Um, Although people do that all the time. I mean, trust me, products like, liability is alive and well. There's not like a personal relationship you have with like your cobbler. Okay. You have with Nike. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. It's possible. Uh, and then if there's like huge slumlords, you can't. And whereas like maybe the it has to do with like boarding houses or innkeepers where you actually have a face-to-face -face interaction with the innkeeper. Okay. Right, maybe. So the relation, you're saying the relationship between landlord and tenant is, 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 is it the same or is it pretty different than consumer product? seems different to me, right? I mean, consumer product, I have no idea, I was, right? I was saying perhaps that the, the like, huge like, real estate companies. Oh, I see. As, as sort of the... Um, the rise of these mega companies that are leasing all over the city, then you don't have that, that relationship. And it looks more like just a plain old consumer product that you have no idea the source of. Yeah, okay, not bad. But can't you buy crummy products if you want to? Right? I mean, isn't that, that's your right? I mean, if I want to buy a junky used car, I'm allowed to do that, right? I mean, it's not like the courts are going to stop me from buying a piece of junk. But there is a baseline in terms of the car that you are able to get. Like, you don't get a car that explodes every time you drive it unless you've got a Ford Pinto pre-punitive pre damages. And so I think but I can certainly buy a car that I know isn't going to last me more than a, the winner, right? That's true, but 1,500 code violations is so egregious that it creates this, that, that it can sort of force the Oh, I've owned cars. It definitely had that many <laughs> code violations. <laughs> definitely the analog. And then in your yeah, exactly. No, I'm just asking, you know, the court says we do this all the time in consumer products. It looks like leases to apartments to, to the court is really similar to consumer products. Now, to be fair to the court, some, some prior to this, some, some cases had held that new homes get that implied warranty just like a regular old consumer product. So they were just saying, well, leases sound a lot like just a product that you purchase, and therefore, if we imply warranties for products, we should imply warranties for, um, uh, for leases. But my response is, well, but sometimes that warranty is really low, right? I mean... It may be that just so I can drive it out of the driveway, and that's pretty much the only warranty I'm getting. But it depends. What they're saying here is that for the entire term 
Right. Yeah. So they so yeah, I mean maybe you're just making sort of the same point, which is this sounds like they're not only importing it, but maybe expanding or taking a, a broader view of it than it really might be. I think there are similarities. I mean there's the underlying economic exchange, the argument that you're paying for a product or you're paying for a lease and that the person who's giving it to you is getting some kind of economic benefit, so they should be responsible for your safety, as well as the argument that like we were saying, you can't really fix it yourself, as well as with product liability, you're expecting that it's safe because you can't make any better yourself. Okay. Same thing holds true for the lease you're okay. on them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, obviously the court thinks that this is this is a good reason to to import it. Alex. I think one argument against them being able to buy anything as poor quality as you want is that it has externalities on other people around you. So you can't build or buy an apartment that's an extreme fire hazard. Okay, good. Right. So maybe, I mean, the fact that we have explicit building codes suggests that there is a real floor here, just like, you know, although I can probably purchase a, ha a car that doesn't meet state inspection, I still can't drive that unless it meets state inspection because of the externality. So maybe it's similar uh, in, that, in that sense. Philip. Um, I think in terms of consumer product liability, you have... It's not consumer product liability per se as much as the war implied warranty. So the implied warranty is there in a way to protect um, consumers who may not have the um, the financial ability to be able to um, to choose products. If you had a choice between crappy products, which you know a hair dryer that explodes versus a hair dryer that's higher quality and doesn't. Okay. Um, and. I think they're trying to do the same thing here by essentially saying, hey, we have situations where, unfortunately, you know, in an ideal situation, I think everybody would choose a place that is pretty, ideal, clean, doesn't violate any health codes or, or housing violations. But unfortunately, um, particularly, say, in an, in an inner city, uh, low-income neighborhood, you have people who don't have that option. And so we need to sort of protect their uh, to protect their um, to protect them. Okay. In the same way that you would with products. All right. Good. Good. Eric. Um, so I think one of the book talks about one of the fundamental things, like benefits of leasing, is specialization versus use. Yep. So here, if you, um, I think there's an economic argument to be made that if you allow the specialist to invest a little bit of money upfront, who um, can tackle everything at once, can probably do it cheaper than a bunch of than each um, uh, tenant taking care of the, the, the poor quality of their apartments individually. I think that just would become incredibly cost, more costly than it would to have a single person do it at once and then bake that into the price. Right. True, although we'll talk about it in a minute, but it, the question then would be whether or not that wouldn't just be reflected in the price, right? That right. we shouldn't, I mean, why can't people compete for crummy landlords too, right, if they're cheaper, right? Would you pay $100 less to have a landlord that was like, I'm not going to fix anything. Just get used to it, right? I mean, would you? I mean, how many people pay less, would like to pay a significant amount less for a landlord that was pretty much honest about, I'm not going to help you. You're pretty much on your own, yeah? How many people still would not take that deal? Interesting. So maybe you do like the implied warranty of habitability. Yeah? Well, wouldn't you... Um I mean, my argument is that it probably would be more expensive for me to take the bare minimum. If it was you mean it's sort of an aggregate societal level? Yeah, okay. Sure, right. I mean, having everybody, you know, on their own, 
right? I mean, you guys should be studying. You shouldn't be fixing your toilets, right? That sort of thing, right? That's probably not the right uh, allocation of, of, of responsibilities. You should be paying somebody. Yep? I think it's like you kind of think that you want your landlord to help, but then, like, your toilet breaks, your hot water's not working, and you're just like, oh, could someone just deal with this for me right now? And you really would have liked to have them help you with it. And it seems stupid to have to put your own money into the... Stupid, but you got a cheaper rent for that, right? I, I mean, I don't think that we should allow people to just like give away, like if they don't have a lot of money, just give away all their rights in terms of like a good okay. place to live, just because they can get. Because like I probably would take the cheaper place, just because like you know no one's gonna, you know, it just seems cheaper at the time. And I don't. We talk about how you value your time now, sure, and differently, right? Yeah. Later, I don't really worry about it, but yeah. Brand? I think the bit, like the thing that makes the most sense to me in terms of continuing the duty to update is that there's an efficiency argument because. If you're moving moving into an apartment, you don't have time to check and make sure those fifteen thousand or fifteen hundred code violations exist. Right. So by forcing a landlord to update them when you find them, it protects you as a consumer because you can't go spend six hours checking every apartment that you look at. You know. So it's right. Like the transaction comes Although presumably, if if there's this prior doctrine, even without implied warranty of han habitability, if it turns out that you could show that even when you entered the lease, they had these violations, you could then you'd have remedies uh, uh, as against the lease. Also, I think the, the market or the nature of the demand for uh, housing is different than the nature of demand for like other goods. Like, okay. You, you mean, like it's much easier to get a different brand of hair dryer than it is to move neighborhoods. And if all the housing in your neighborhood is crappy, then you don't have that kind of way to remedy it yourself other than like fixing it you might not have time. And, or good. Or yeah, so that's a good argument, which is this, the, the housing market is not necessarily the same kind of market as a consumer products market. There's probably a lot less competition. Um, people aren't mobile for one thing. They can't necessarily move from place to place because of jobs or family or whatever. And so uh, you're sort of, your supply is much more limited. I was just going to say, how much maybe underlying this is you tend to have the of development, we like to develop things. So maybe it's not the moral argument of, well, we should take care of the buildings because it's nice for the people who have the lease, but just because we don't want to have crappy buildings that are around and we don't want to encourage people to just let the buildings fall apart. Okay. And if we use this as a mechanism to have people keep updating and developing their buildings, then we can keep leasing them out over and over. True, but what would be the counter-argument to that? What's the counter-argument? If, if you're looking at this strictly from a, a overall development perspective, so Jordan says this is going to be good because now we're forcing everybody to spend money on their buildings and keep them nice or nicer than they would otherwise be. But from a development perspective, there might be an opposite uh, argument, right? Pam. Um, well, code compliance can be like endlessly Okay, so then what's the economic argument? I mean, explain. I mean, if, the, if our goal, ultimate goal, is to try and get more development, better buildings, more buildings, how does that work? Good. All right. So the fact that we, now people were involved in having to do all of this all the time would potentially be a cost that they would have to factor in and everything that they do. Jaron? The other thing is, as was mentioned in the book, uh, some of these they're just, they're just trying to get the last dollar they can out of it before the building falls apart. And then, potentially, they, they can build a new building. You know what I mean? And so if they're, if they're constantly having to update the building, then they're spending money on that, and then it's less likely that they're going to reach a point where they can 
you know, feel like it's going to be more cost effective to demolish it and build a new building. Okay, although they could, I mean, there's nothing about implied warranty of habitability that says you can't just stop renting and build yourself a new building, right? True, but you're still, I mean, if you want to get any income at all, then you're having all this outgo, whereas in the, in the alternative, and I don't agree with this, I'm just a Yeah, plan, sure. But in the alternative, if you could rent it as a slum and get a little bit of money, a little bit of money, a little bit of money until it's economically feasible that, okay, I'm no longer going to need Okay. All right. Fair enough. I'm not sure that works, but fair enough. Yeah. Because of like the short-term nature of leases, I think that people, if you make, if you put the onus on the landlord to take care of the property, they'll have less of an incentive to keep it nice because they know they might not be there that long. Okay. Whereas if you make them pay out of their pocket for anything that might happen to the to the property, then they'll be less inclined to treat it like they're only going to be there for a short time, and they might be so they'll have an interest in uh, in keeping the quality nice. So that will make it so um, the landlord doesn't have to keep going back and making some changes to keep up with the housing codes. Okay, good. Yeah, good. All right, so one point um, here is, is this idea that the court has sort of what, what most commentators call sort of a schizophrenia when it talks about the way that leases should be interpreted. On the one hand, the court says we don't want to be sort of, you know, uh, the, the tenant beware sort of uh, approach that we used to have in, in leasing law, right? Instead, we want a more contractarian approach where we're going to indeed imply certain terms into the deal that maybe aren't there expressly. And so a very much a, a more modern contract approach to the leases. On the other hand, the court then later in the opinion says, well, that's all true, but what you cannot do is waive the implied warranty of, of habitability or disclaiming. You can't force your tenant uh, to sign away their implied warranty of habitability, right? So it's an interesting sort of um, uh, approach where on the one hand the court says, well, we're doing this because we're upholding the contract nature of leases um, uh, and then later they seem to sort of undermine that by saying this is a non-waivable provision. I mean, you can understand why they want it as a non-waivable provision, right? Because otherwise uh, it's pretty easy for, for landlords to simply not comply by saying, well, part of this lease is going to disclaim your implied warranty of habitability. Uh, so they didn't want to do that. On the other hand, the court also later on says, well, it's going to be, we're going to strictly interpret the implied warranty of habitability. And then this footnote says, well, one or two code violations probably aren't very important but, uh, and, and wouldn't raise any remedies, but uh, more than that would be problematic. So it's a little unclear about what the uh, exact level of enforcement is going to be. There are a couple related doctrines just to flag for you. The retaliatory eviction doctrine, uh, the same court, the D.C. Circuit, uh, said uh, that it would be a retaliatory, retaliatory eviction for a landlord to evict a tenant who is not paying rent where the purpose of evicting the tenant was to take the property off the rental market, right? So that, that was, this was making it increasingly difficult to get rid of uh, tenants who weren't uh, paying rent. And, and the idea there was taking property off the rental market and announced a t intention to take the property off of the rental market, um, remove the property from the rental market was viewed as a bad act by the court. Uh, and then this illegal lease doctrine, which we already talked about. So one question is, is, why not just disclose? Why not just say that we have a, a mandatory disclosure requirement, um, but not necessarily a implied warranty of habitability requirement? So what you have to do is you have to list as a addendum to the lease 
all of the problems with the apartment um, at the time of the lease um, and be ex you know, expressly clear about what those problems are and, and how they work. Um, and shouldn't that be enough? It's easy? No, because then you just end up with the same problem that you already have, which is predatory landlords who take advantage of people who can't. But it's all listed, right? It says hot water heater, doesn't work. Toilet works on Tuesdays, right? I mean, it's going to be listed right there. Okay. Um, also, like, what if, okay, you agree to certain, like, whatever, my toilet doesn't work, but then while you're living there, more problems come up, okay. and the landlord probably wouldn't have a responsibility to fix them, so then you're going right. to yeah, so the mandatory disclosure requirement wouldn't necessarily help for things that would crop up during the term of the lease that couldn't obviously have been disclosed, right? So that's one thing. And yes, ZZ's right, which is that would, you know, the idea is it would not necessarily fix the underlying problem. Now, the question is whether you think, you know, really how much you think this makes sense comes down to how, how much you think this is like a regular market. Right? If it's a regular competitive market where you have a fair amount of choices and people at various income levels have some choices, then you would think that landlords would compete among, among features of their properties, and this would be one of the features. Right? Code compliance would be a, would be a feature. Uh, and as long as there was reasonable amounts of disclosure and transparency, you would expect that market to work. Now, if you don't think that the market for housing works like that, if you think that there are various reasons that, are, that there are significant market failures, then you might think that the implied warranty of habitability works, uh, makes a lot more sense where we're going to essentially force these terms into every lease uh, and thereby make sure that there's sort of a, a mandatory minimum level of, of maintenance. Okay? Um, and I think most observers think that the housing market, particularly the urban uh, housing market, is not a, not a traditional market in the, in the usual sense. Uh, just for a variety of reasons, one, the income levels we've already talked about. There are also some places in the, in the United States where um, there's a uh, way more demand than supply, right? New York City, other major urban areas that are uh, uh, sought after often exhibit this where the, the landlords would have inordinate power um, to dictate terms, and so you might worry that, uh, that this wouldn't function like a normal market. Right? Um, so the remedies here are interesting. Of course, there's the rescission of the lease by the tenant. The tenant can simply bail. Uh, there's specific performance available, the court says, which basically means you know, an or court order saying fix the toilet. Um, interestingly enough, the court also says there are damages available. Damages for brief breaches, which might be a set-off or withholding. And it's actually pretty interesting to think about how you might calculate that, right? So um, what would you do it to calculate? Uh, I mean, there's sort of three ways you could do it. One, you could subtract how much rent uh, and value for, due to the non-compliance, right? So your hot water heater doesn't work. Um, and so uh, how, many, how, many, how much damages, well... How much damage is that, that your hot water heater doesn't work? Anyone? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very hard to figure out what the calculation would be. You could say, well, 
what would people pay for that apartment without a working hot water heater? Well, if there's a lot, and depending on how significant the code violations are, people might not want the apartment at all. So there, there wouldn't be sort of a way of measuring that. So that's one particular issue. Um, the, the other thing is, is that often you might think that these damages might end up being sort of a windfall for the tenant, right? Because the tenant probably is paying a lower price for being in a uh, apartment complex that has 1,500 code violations, right? Rather than one that is, uh, uh, that is fully up to code. And if that's true, then all of these damages are going to be a potential windfall for uh, tenants. Um, and again, that, you might think that's okay because it's going to incentivize uh, the tenants to, to do this um, and to try and enforce the implied warranty of habitability. Um, but on the other hand, the question is whether, whether it's too much um, and whether it makes it too difficult to rent. Anybody involved in sort of commercial residential renting? No? Yeah, and you ever have? Are you, you're not a slumlord, are you? <laughs> nice. <laughs> we uh, owned a triplex, the house that converted into three apartments, and we completely remodeled it and everything. And, uh, and he's of the opinion that, I don't know, the less you spend, spend on it, the more you make, whatever is better for the bottom line. And right, yeah. tried to educate him that uh, the more you spend on it, the nicer you make it, the higher quality people you're going to get in there, the fewer repairs you're going to have to do in the future. Right. Yeah, I mean, so this has been pretty controversial over over the last decades. There's been a, a long, and we won't, we don't have time to go through this. Um, there's been a lot of literature on whether the implied warranty of habitability really helps or hurts. Right, the basic idea here is it might hurt if it raises the cost of all residential leases. Then it might hurt people who would otherwise only just be able to afford those kind of places. On the other hand, it might help because we are setting a floor. Uh, underneath uh, just how, how egregiously bad some of these apartments can be. Um, and uh, the one thing that does come through from all the studies that have actually gone out to look at this is that this is extremely low enforcement, right? The actual enforcement of implied warranty of habitability um, seems extremely low. Why would you expect that? What's your, what's your hypothesis for why there's almost no it's very, very rare that a uh, enforcement of this implied warranty actually occurs. The, the tenants are unlikely to bring it to court because they want lower rent, and they're, you know, they're just, you know, or they're afraid of getting kicked out or whatever, right? I mean, the, the tenants are not exactly in a powerful position in a lot of these cases uh, uh, where this exact doctrine would be helpful to them, uh, and so they're uh, unlikely and, and, and perhaps uh, unusually reluctant to do it. And in fact, most of the times when you see these cases come forward, it's as a large group, usually some sort of organization brings it on their behalf. Jaron. That's true. I mean, that, that could be true, too. But even, even given that, the people who have studied how often this gets enforced, they still say that, that, in fact, it probably has not raised the level of code compliance all that much. Not as much as you. It's not like every apartment out there is compliant, right? It's uh, still a very significant problem in most uh, areas about, about code compliance, even though we now have this floor. Jackie. It's happening when people get evicted. It's like you, get a, you, you evict me, and then I say, you can't do that. Or I don't pay my rent, and you're evicting me for not paying my rent. And then I turn around and say, well, you have 75 code violations. Is that kind of when this happens? I mean, uh, look, I think it happens a, a fair amount of time when there's a dispute. I think 
non-payment of rent is the sort of easiest way to get your landlord's attention. Not that I'm giving legal advice at this point. Uh, but that is usually the, the thing that will trigger sort of any activity surrounding fixing the place or not. Um, yeah. Generally not a good idea when you're leasing an apartment to uh, tell them you're a lawyer, by the way. Um. <laughs> All right. So let's go into security interests. Here's the idea of security interest, just the basic schematic diagram, right? We have a, we have a borrower owner who needs money, right? And they're going to get money from um, somebody who's loaning them money, otherwise known as the note holder. And so they take the money, and in return, they're giving what we call in this section a security interest, right? And so the question here is, what is, what is that relationship about? And... Is this divided ownership? I mean, in some sense, you might call it a divided ownership because now this note holder has an interest. It's not really sort of a, a full property right, but it is a property-related right, right? It's a security interest in the land, meaning they have a right, a priority right is the usually, way it, usually the way it's uh, described, um, to claim against the property for the usually the sum of the, the note that, that was given. Um, and so... In some ways, you might view this as, as divided ownership because very often the, the terms of the deal that will create this security interest will limit the ability of the borrower or owner to do particular kinds of things with uh, the underlying property, right, for reasons that I'm sure you can figure out, which is, you know, the, the note holder now has this interest in the property and wants that interest maintained, right? So you're generally not allowed to sort of dramatically change the use of your property um, uh, when you've given over a security interest. Uh, you, the sale of the property is going to obviously have to um, uh, be uh, taken into consideration the security interest and so forth. So that's, that's sort of the basics here. Now, it gets tricky when you try and figure out, which we're going to do in a minute, how how security interests are actually enforced. But this is the basic idea. One of the big problems with, with security interests uh, are notice problems. Why? What's sort of the predictable consequence of these security interests all over the place? Alex. Exactly, right? It's, it can be often very difficult to know. There's no obvious, I mean, you can tell if somebody lives there by, you know, you look, right? Who's living there, right? Security interests are by definition sort of, you know, remote, absent. They're just an interest, not a ownership, not a sort of possessory right. Um, and because of that, it's going to be difficult uh, to figure out whether or not they exist. And, and yet, that's pretty important, right? If you buy a house and the person who is selling you the property has already given a note uh, or given, you know, it comes with this security interest, that's going to be pretty important for you to know because that person whose security interest is is going to have a claim against the property. So you're not getting what you thought you were getting. Uh, and so how do we deal with this, do you think? Mm-hmm. Exactly. We record interest, right? And we'll, we'll do title recording and stuff uh, uh, later, actually, starting tomorrow. Um, but the, the basic idea is that we try and remedy these notice problems, and in almost all cases, security interests must be registered, must be recorded. Um, this is usually at the county level. 
um, and, uh, and that's, again, to try and enhance the notice uh, functions uh, of, of the system and, and make sure that people know what they're getting when it comes to uh, these interests. Right? So land transactions. How many people here have bought a house before? Yeah, a few. So land transactions uh, have the following sort of features. Right? You negotiate. You negotiate with the person that you're purchasing it from. The product of that negotiation is a contract, right? Is a is a contract for sale, um, and uh, oftentimes, like in many states, those will be standard forms that have sort of blanks that you fill in. Sometimes it'll be a customized, off the rack sort of thing. Um, there's some part of the contract will specify a closing date, uh, and at the closing date. Um, the deed to the property changes hands, right? A deed is either created or the one that already exists is, uh, is given uh, to uh, the new owner, uh, and then that deed is recorded, and that's obviously an important step for the reasons we just suggested before. The one important point I want to make is that under sort of the general rules of, of land transactions, at the closing, your contract goes away. Your contract is only good as between the negotiation point the end of your negotiations and your closing date, right? And then it, it's, it's described as how it merges in with the deed, right? So basically, you need to get everything done in the contract, you know, before the closing, right? So that means if your contract has said things like you need to fix the porch, right, it's important that that be done before the closing because the contract, right, that contractual relationship dissolves as of the time of the closing. Now, that doesn't mean you can't sign another deal, right, that you're going to do it later or whatever. It just means that you won't, well, first of all, you won't have as much leverage once the, the, the transaction has gone through. And second of all, it means that, that whatever that, that contract was is, is gone, so you need a new deal. Um, and so if you want things to survive, like there are particular terms that need to survive the contract, such as I'm not going to use this for other than uh, a single family home or something like that, which might be part of the contract, you need to make sure it's in the deed for it to be enforceable uh, as against the, the property. Yep, you can do that. Letting it out when everything's finished. Right. So one way to say would be to, you know, if, if they don't fix the porch in time for closing is to say, all right, instead of having, you know, to make sure we have appropriate uh, interest on both sides, you need to deposit a few thousand dollars in an escrow account, and therefore that'll be returned to you when the rest of the, when the second contract is done, essentially, right? So there are ways around it, but just sort of as a, to flag for you that the, the contract that you make sort of merges with your deed uh, and, or, or dissolves as of the time of, of the closing. So foreclosure is the, the basic way by which a security interest is enforced, right? When you, when you have this security interest, you have the right uh, to get your money back in some way. And usually the way that that is done is by uh, the method of foreclosure when we're talking about real property. Obviously, foreclosure, you may have noticed, has been in the news lately. Um, and, and so uh, it's an it's a important and emerging field. Um, apparently done uh, very sloppily. But, uh, and so there's this, the first thing is strict foreclosure, right? Strict foreclosure is the, was the old sort of original concept of foreclosure. And what was it? What does strict foreclosure entail? Jason. 
Not, it's not so much they can kick you out, but yes, they have the right to kick you out, but what is it that happens the second you sort of don't make that payment? Yeah, the title essentially gets delivered, transferred. The ownership of the property transfers to the security interest holder whenever there's been a, a breach of the agreement, right? So, uh, and that means, yes, very likely they could kick you out um, or whatever else, okay, uh, might happen. The second uh, concept and the one that is actually much more common now is a foreclosure by sale, right? And that is a foreclosure proceeding is begun and the property is sold, and the proceeds of that sale are then used to pay the security interest uh, off uh, to, the, to, the, to the note holder, right? Um, and so that's, that is, um, in a sense, a more modern approach. It's viewed as uh, more, uh, well, more beneficial to the, um, to the person who, who borrowed, to the borrower, um, because it, it can often allow, well, it allows some more time. It doesn't make an automatic um, transfer. We'll talk in a minute about some other advantages it offers. Um, the other sort of recent trend is the redemption period. Right? What's a redemption period? Right. It's somewhat like a, I guess you can analogize it to a statute of limitations. In a sense. You know, it's a period during which the owner has to pay off like a, a county or most of the time, this will happen on the accounting level. But stipulate, hey, you have three, three months or six months to pay this off. At the end of that, uh, we will go to a foreclosure by sale. Or and actually, usually, I mean, there are foreclosures that ha or redemption periods that happen prior to foreclosure. But usually, when we talk about a redemption period, we're talking about a period after the foreclosure sale has already happened, right? So the idea here is that there's there's an event. With the, so the sale happens, and then there's this redemption period, right? And what is that? What, is, what can I do? So I've, I have foreclosed here, but then there's a redemption period, and, and it can vary. Some, I was... Um, uh, in the, I guess there's a, well, I was looking this up, and there's a, up to a year in many states of a foreclosure period. Mm -hmm. Just yes, the mortgager like, redeems their property depending on how long their redemption period is, and then that's normally based off of, like, how profitable the markets are at the time, how long it lasts. So it might be, well, so there's a lot of differences in how, and we'll talk about how long the period should be, but yes, the basic idea is that there's a time period when the mortgagor, right, the person who borrowed the money, took out the note, uh, can redeem the property even after it's been sold, right? So this actually means in many cases when you buy a foreclosed property, right, the deed that you get has this little asterisk attached to it, which basically says this is subject to the person who was foreclosed upon showing up and doing what? What do they have to do in order to redeem? So this, I think we're, we're talking about the same thing. They have to pay off the um, outstanding taxes or... Um, taxes, and what else? Whatever back payments... Whatever they owe, yes. I thought you were talking about before the foreclosure. This is actually after foreclosure. Yes. Right. 
Right. And they can redeem and essentially get their property back if they pay everything, basically. At that point, they have to pay whatever is you know, still owed to the bank, if they're taxes, fees, sometimes penalties, sometimes even the costs associated with a foreclosure sale because there will be costs like realtors' costs and things like that will all be due, but that will give you the opportunity to do that, right? And, and the, the – um, uh, yeah, James. Uh, so the, the book notes that there's been sort of a expansion and contraction of these redemption periods and the strength of the redemption periods over time. Why? What's the explanation for this? What's the compensate for cycles in the economy? Yeah. So what? So explain how cycles in the economy relate to this. So in the current period, um, you know, we're in the midst of a foreclosure crisis in large part due to the over, you know, overall economy, and so we want to we appreciate that, so we extend the redemption period Good. to allow people more time to. Yeah, so we might extend redemption periods. We might add in redemption periods when, when they don't otherwise exist. We might curtail the ability to waive redemption periods uh, and those sorts of things to make it more uh, possible for uh, homeowners to essentially stay in their home by redeeming the property, right? And, and the, court, the book notes that this happens sort of over and over again when there's a major uh, economic crisis. So who does this? Like, how does that happen? Is there some – how does it work? Justine. The legislature has to change it? Usually the legislature. Sometimes judges feel sympathetic or whatever, but very often it's political pressure on the legislatures to change these, these rules. Is this a good thing? I would say no, because usually the legislate, legislature trails whenever that market cycle is. So you could be expanding the redemption period during a market boom and contracting it during a market shrink because you're trying to respond to something that's happened before. Okay. All right. So the timing might be off. They might not be able to get the timing right. But even if their timing's exactly right, does this make sense? Philip? I think it's really unfair to people who are buying the property because it seems like in a lot of cases you have a lot of opportunity before you actually get to the foreclosure sale. There's a lot of opportunity to fix the fact that you're in arrears and that you're not paying off your debt. Yes. And you so I think, it's, I think it's really unfair when people are buying it. And it's also unfair Although, to, to be fair to those people, they know, right? I mean, it's not like you don't know when you buy something at foreclosure. They say, by the way, it's a foreclosure sale. Potentially, this person could come back. It's also unfair to the note holder because basically that means that they've got this tainted property for as long as a redemption period that they can't fully unload on someone else. Right. Okay. So it's kind of a... Uh, All right, so it seems unfair, right? What about economically? Does it make sense, Daniel? I think it further depresses the market because people are less likely to buy foreclosed homes if the, the period is longer. Yeah, I mean, and that I mean, there's been a lot of talk about this sort of in the in the news now, which is one of the problems. Um, that, that the current housing market has is that we're sort of unable to get through this backlog of, of foreclosures. And a lot of people, economists who look at the housing market, think that um, until all of the foreclosures that need to happen happen, you're never going to sort of rebound the economy because foreclosed homes obviously uh, put a lot of downward pressure on the overall market. Darren. I don't think it's definitively decided upon, at least in, in many areas in America, whether there is a market that's going to be profitable for these foreclosed homes. So, assuming that. So sorry, I missed that. What so is that? There, there are not necessarily buyers for these foreclosed homes. 
So economically, we're looking at what's the highest and best use of the house. Okay. For, for a bank to just hold it and have it on the market while no one's using it, no one's living in it, or is it better to have these people who are going through a hard time? Good. Yeah. There, right. The house, go to work. Being, you know, out. Sure, right. So, so some of this might depend on whether you think this is... Oh, there's a big market for foreclosed homes, right? Yeah, People buy this all the time. It's not like a gold rush, I don't think. People are probably getting caught up in it, but I don't know if it's really profitable. Okay. Okay. How do you go about buying a foreclosed home? It seems like the sales... <laughs> I mean, yeah, go ahead. Well, no. I mean, a lot of times it's just out on the market like all the other homes out there. It's, um, and it's, uh, I mean, sometimes they're at auction or something like that. But very often, you know, they'll just put the sign out at the street like any other house and they'll have an unusually low price very often because the bank's interest is in getting it done quickly and not having a bunch of, of time to try and negotiate things out. Um, but in general, these, these are available. Josh? I'm not sure about this, but I think that it can make foreclosure more likely because banks know that with a longer redemption period, it's um, it's more likely that their the bank is going to be out money, and so it'll raise their cost that they impose on the buyer. Good. And so then the buyer now is a who with the worst credit rating has a higher interest rate is more likely to then default, and it's sort of like a nasty cycle. Sure. Yeah. To the extent that long redemption periods make it more difficult, less attractive to loan money then that can't be good for the overall housing market, right? And that's, that's sort of one of the points people make, is that although you can understand the impetus by the legislature and judges to do this, you might not be helping the, the housing market any by, by expanding those, those sorts of protections, right? All right, so Murphy versus financial development. So the Murphys purchase a house, uh, take out a loan and a mortgage on the house to secure the loan, right? They refinance, they su sign a new note, they fall behind. Right? And so they fall behind, uh, and they keep basically trying to catch up. Right? So the story here is the Murphys keep trying to catch up, trying to make their payments. They never quite succeed. Right? They end up uh, just short, uh, about $643 short in the costs and fees associated with the preparations for the foreclosure. Um, they got a postponement um, in return for an additional cost of $100. Uh, and then the lenders decide they're going to sell. Right? And the lenders uh, got the, the um, uh, sale, uh, well, so the lenders sell uh, on, uh, on a particular day, uh, December 15th, um, and, and they got a sale uh, around 10 a.m. Uh, later that day, the attorney who conducted the sale, uh, well, the bank bought the, bought the property uh, for $27,000, which was roughly the amount owed on the mortgage, fancy that. Uh, and then later the day, the attorney who had done that sale just happened to encounter somebody uh, who offered the lenders first $27,000 and then later uh, $40,000, and then they eventually settled for $38,000. So why are the Murphys mad? I mean, they're upset. They lost their equity that they for, for Right. So, so they've paid into this house and then the house gets sold for basically what they still owed on it, which means what? That, well, the equity that they, they put in, uh, well, it could have sold for more money. And if it had, what would that mean? They would have gotten that. Exactly. 
Right. So if it sold for seventy thousand dollars, then that money, you know, twenty-seven thousand of it would go to satisfy the banknote, and the rest would then go to the Murphys. But the Murphys are mad because the house sold, uh, you know, ten a.m. on a snowy winter's morning uh, to the uh, to to the bank itself for exactly the amount that the note was at, uh, was for, for almost the amount the note was for, which means they don't get any money. Their, their equity has been extinguished. So they are trying to basically get this undone, right, and get either money from the bank or get the house back and be redo or at least another sale where they think they can get a better uh, deal. And they point to this, this uh, that, you know, only hours later they made a, they, the bank managed to make a deal for a significantly higher price as evidence of, of bad faith. Uh, on the part of the bank, right? So there's a statutory issue here um, uh, is that, you know, the, you have to petition for foreclosure and complete the service upon the property, uh, conducting the sale prior to the sale, shall thereafter be a, uh, shall bar any action or right of the action of the mortgage or based on the validity of the foreclosure, right? So they have, there's a statutory issue here about whether or not the Murphy should have been, um, well, sh whether they waive this, but so let's set that aside because we're in a hurry and talk about um, the foreclosure rules. So there's statutory process requirements. So there's certain things that, in order to foreclose upon, the uh, the, for the mortgager, the bank has to do in order to meet uh, statutory standards. And this is a pretty heavily regulated area of the law for reasons that you can understand because uh, the. Um, the societal interest is pretty significant in maintaining people in their homes and making sure these processes are fair. And then there's this other idea, which is this generalized duty, right, to protect the interests of the mortgagor, right? So why is this there? I mean, why should there be a generalized duty, sort of a common law duty, to make sure the interests of the mortgagor are upheld at all times? And I think the answer is the, the, the foreclosure process has mortgagors in a very weak position, right? They're in a very weak financial position. Um, there's, it's very likely that there are other crises going on with them in their lives, uh, and they're probably not able to look out for themselves as well as they would in other contexts. And so it's important to have, uh, the law thinks, a generalized duty that everybody involved, right, in particular the bank doing the foreclosing, has a duty to make sure their interests are uphold, upheld as much as possible, right? Um, and so the lender has this duty of, of good faith. So they have to behave in good faith with respect to um, the, uh, uh, the, the, party, uh, the mortgagor. And they also have to exercise due diligence in seeking a fair price for the property. And again, for the reason that we suggested that we were just talking about earlier, it's important uh, to make sure that there's a fair price involved in, um, uh, in well, in the in the uh, sale because this is this is their equity, right? This is the the note holder, the the property owners, not the note holder. The property owner's equity could potentially be extinguished by a sale that did not exercise due diligence and didn't reach the appropriate price, right? The complicating factor here is in what what are the appropriate amount of damages, right? Because there's a difference between a fair market value and a fair price, right? The fair market value might be, in fact, significantly higher than a fair price, 
uh, under, under the way that courts usually interpret this uh, type of, of regime. And so the thing to remember here is that the idea is more, this is more of a process issue, right, than almost anything else. Because, yes, we talk a lot about making sure there's good faith and there's due diligence, um, but as long as it looks like the, the foreclosure, the note holder, is exercising a, um, uh, a fair process, giving notice, working through all of the issues, then usually um, the price that is revealed will generally thought to be a fair price, even though it may in, in many cases be below fair market value, which is why you see foreclosed homes uh, on the open market so often for often very significant discounts over what uh, non-foreclosed homes would be because there's no, there's no actual requirement that you, that you meet full market value when you sell a foreclosed home. It just has to be a fair price, okay? So that's the, the sort of points of, of that case. We'll do one more real quick here, and this is a land contract. What's a land contract? It's a slightly different kind of financing mechanism. It's a, it's a traditional and sort of informal mechanism whereby it's an agreement not necessarily with a third party. Like usually if I buy a house, I'm going to contract with a bank to take a mortgage and give the money to the seller. Land contracts are usually between buyers and sellers um, for a piece of land. Right? And they usually have terms like, I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars over time for the next 30 years. So they have attributes of a mortgage, but they're not quite the same because there's no third party. You're not expressly giving any security interest. And it's a little ambiguous as to what exactly the condition of title is in these land contracts. Right? And so in the, in the Skendal case, the defendants made no payments after February 1965. Uh, and... And so the issue is whether or not, so the, well, the issue is what happens uh, at this point because the, um, uh, the, the, the issue here is we, that the marshals, let me go back one slide, yes. So the defendants won, all right, let me just go through the notes a little more clearly here. All right, there's a sales contract, price of $36,000, payable according to a schedule. Prepayments were treated as being lieu of further payments to the extent of the prepayment. So you could prepay as much as you wanted. And importantly, the contract had a forfeiture clause under which a, a default that remained uncured for 30 days would allow the vendor to keep all the previous payments as liquidated damages. Right? So this is important because it means if there's a breach of the contract, uh, by the pay by the purchaser, it means that not only does the the seller end up with the property, but they could potentially end up with all of the payments entered into the property at the same time, right? Uh, and so what happens is the payments stopped at some point after the payment of February fifteenth, nineteen sixty-five, uh, and um, the 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 the. The defendants won in the trial court. I'm trying to figure out who the defendants. The defendant petitioners, uh, yeah, Marshall. So Marshall was the person who owned the land, right? I get the names flipped all the time. All right, whatever. We'll pick this up tomorrow. We don't have enough time. 